Now I want to read this morning the account of the temptation of our Lord in Matthew 4. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward in hunger. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said in him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdom of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I want you to think with me about the fact that uh, the same temptations that beset our Lord are also common to the church today. The church is threefold temptation. He was tempted in all points like as we are. We are tempted in all points like as he was. Now this first temptation concerned a natural appetite, the physical. Command these stones to be made bread. And our Lord did on occasion minister to that. He said a multitude of loaves and fishes on the shore of Tiberias prepared food for the disciples. But the devil wanted him to go into the bread business. Make bread out of stones, which would be quite an interesting job because there's a lot of raw material available. You know. Just go into the bread business. But uh, the church today is tempted to go into the bread business, and I mean by that, become so occupied with hunger programs and poverty projects and all the rest that we forget that man shall not live by bread alone. Now, there is a ministry of bread, and no institution has fed more hungry people than the church. I was hungry, and you fed me. You remember that in Acts 6, there was so much table serving of needy people that seven were appointed, so the apostles could give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And today we face the same danger, being so occupied with feeding bodies that we neglect our main business of saving souls. Uh, the Living Bible puts it that the apostles were saying we should spend our time preaching, not administering a feeding program. God never meant that the church should take care under its roof of all the needs of all its members. Uh, I don't believe that he ever did. Uh, food, sports, entertainment, social life, all the rest of it. But rather, produce Christians who can choose these principles and act upon them wherever they are. Now, sometimes the church can get so excited about what uh, has been called in the past, soup, soap, and salvation, that there's more and more soup and soap and sports and shows and not much salvation. 
if somebody had given the prodigal son a bath and a bed and a bun, he never would have gone home to the father's house. Not our business to set up bread lines in the far country. It's our business to get the lost back to the Father's house. Jesus didn't feed everybody. He just fed the crowds on a couple of occasions. He didn't heal everybody either. Uh, we sometimes must remember that all these marvelous things Jesus did were samples of what he's going to do when he comes back to reign, take over everything. Uh, he's not doing, he didn't do it generally then. But as an illustration, among others. And then you remember in Luke 11, the man who had company at midnight and no bread. He went to the friend's house and got the bread that he needed. There was a friend to feed, and our friends have come to us in their journey, and if we don't have God's bread to set before them, your children, what are they in a sense? Your friends who have come to you in their journey. Your Sunday school class is your friends who have come to you in their journey. And every preacher ought to remember that his congregation is his friends who have come to him in their journey. And if he doesn't get the bread from the Father's house, they won't be fed. There was a friend to feed and there was a friend in need. That was the hopes. Why the company came at midnight, I don't know, but you never can tell when company's going to show up anyhow. And likely when the bread's pretty low. Well, anyhow, and here was a friend to feed and a friend in need, and then thank God there was a friend indeed. And that was the one who had the bread. We're in the bread business, and Jesus is the bread of life, and all too often when men want bread, we give them a stone, and in this respect, we do need to turn stones into bread. Jesus said in John 6, when they had a crowd and nothing to eat, and you remember that one of the disciples proposed that uh, they go to uh, uh, see if they could hunt some food. Well, I'm glad the Lord didn't send a delegation of disciples over to the nearest town to try to, to the bakery over there and see if they could supply that need. There was a budget proposed, 200 penny worth of bread, and that wouldn't be enough. There was a boy presented. That boy with the loaves and fishes. And there was a bounty provided, so much that they had plenty left over. Now in John 6, our Lord lost his crowd. That ought to encourage you sometimes, because when he started out preaching, they wanted to make him a king. And he had fed the most. Today I get into some churches that ought to be called Ichabod Memorial Church. Because the glory has long since departed. They are, and some of our church people, some of our Christians, are willing to take Jesus as their Savior, but not as their sustenance. You remember that when the Passover blood was put on the doorpost, they also ate the lamb. And there are those today who say, well, I'm under the blood, but they don't feed much on Jesus the bread. Is your meat and your drink, and they don't live by the daily appropriation of the living Christ by faith for every need. No wonder they're so weak and sickly and uh, degenerate Christianity. No wonder we have so many church babies. I don't mean in the nursery, but I mean the 150 and 200 pound crowd of babies who are always fussing because they're hard to please. And when you have a new preacher that comes and the babies grumble because they said he... he uh, he changed my formula. Well, you would expect that, perhaps, from babies in the church. Jesus said, Ye seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. 
Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you for him, as God the Father sees. We are not here as a church to cater to a generation of freeloaders. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And it's our business to get out the word. The second temptation wanted to get Jesus in the showbiz. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. The angels will hold you up anyhow. And we'll announce it this afternoon. We get word out at a certain time. Jesus and Nazareth is going to jump off the pinnacle. Man, you will have a crowd. And you'll get some disciples out of that crowd, I imagine. Because that's a good way, you know, of the end or justify the means. Because if you can get a few disciples, you know, some kinds of preachers today think if you can get one fellow to make a profession of religion to justify any means that he has to get all those folks out to the meeting, which I don't necessarily believe. And so uh, it looked pretty good. But the Lord didn't do it, of course. And the church today is not running a showboat. We're running a lifeboat. And the gospel was never meant for entertainment. And you don't have to use this world's bait to attract the world to hear the message of God. The sad day when the church gets into the circus business and furnishes all the monkeys. And that's what we're doing in this time. <coughs> My, how the mass media can take, can take nobody today and make a celebrity out of them overnight. You've noticed that. And sometimes they've done it with new converts and they didn't turn out too well. Now, uh, that's not canonization, but it's, uh, uh, it's making celebrities out of novices. We have instant saints, just like we have instant oatmeal and instant coffee and so on. And of course, you can get saved instantly. And so far as your position is concerned in Christ, you are instantly a saint. But a mature saint does not grow up overnight. God does doesn't just turn them into a uh, mature saint, a grown-up saint, not by leaps and bounds. If Junior in your home had grown one night six inches in height and added 25 pounds to his weight, you'd been scared to death, wouldn't you? <coughs> the boys grow by food, rest, and exercise. And so does the Christian. Feed on the Word, rest in the Lord, exercise thyself into Godliness. Some folks think that just one, one sudden experience will make them a mature saint. No, it won't. I don't care what it is. You have to grow, and that takes time. I heard of a fellow that had a sprained his arm and injured it, and the doctor said the ligaments are torn. And put the man in the, put the arm in the sling for some time. So he went around like that. Finally the doctor told him when to come back, he did. The doctor told, took off the sling and the fellow said, now I can do anything I want to. Oh, yeah. I can go swimming. Yeah. I can play baseball. Yeah. So I can play the piano. Yeah. Good. He said, I always wanted to play a piano. Well, you don't learn how to play the piano, but just uh, something that happens in an hour takes a lot of time. We're living in an age, beloved. I said this the other day to a great crowd out in California. That preacher's meeting didn't get many amens. Probably won't this morning. Stick my neck out anyhow. I said America is show crazy, sports crazy, and sex crazy. That's the condition of things today in the land. And it got mighty quiet out there. I said, well, I didn't expect many amens on that remark. Television has brought the theater into the home. 
kids can make a fortune today just acting on the commercials. Did you know that? That a youngster can get an amazing prize if they're clever enough just for a short commercial. And it's sort of an abnormal business. And the church has caught the fever, and we're setting up services today that look like a TV show with a format from Hollywood. I've been in some churches I could have shut my eyes and thought I was in a nightclub. There's a subtle brainwashing program of the world, the flesh, and the devil that's being geared sometimes to the worship of God in this age. And we need to take a warning from some of the old saints of another day. There was a time when Charles Haddon Spurgeon, perhaps the greatest Baptist preacher who ever lived, said, Many would unite the church and the stage, cards and prayer, dancing and sacraments. If we are powerless to stem this torrent, we can at least warn men of it. Uh, and of its existence and entreat them to stay out of it. But now that is great to smile by some even the clerical brethren who say, well, Spurgeon, yeah. Another great Baptist preacher, one of the greatest, said, the notion having grown up that we entertain men in order to win them to Christ, Every invention for world-pleasing which human ingenuity can forward till the church has been turned into playhouses. My soul, what would he say now? And there is hardly a carnal amusement that can be named from billiard to dancing which does not find meat placed in sanctuaries. Now listen to this tremendous. If, <coughs> is it then Phariseeism or uh, to sound the note of alarm or to predict that at the present fearful rate of progress, the close of this decade may find the Protestant Church as uh, assimilated to 19th century and now it's 20th century secularism as the Catholic Church was assimilated to 4th century pagan. That's a terrific statement from A.J. Gordon, one of the greatest preachers, a man who took an old, most grown, ivy-clad church in Boston, turned it into a powerhouse by the grace of God. But, but nobody's saying that. Somebody said, well, that's all right for Spurgeon, all right for Gordon. Yes. And you know, I remember those old giants, they're gone but not forgotten. The trouble with us preachers today is we're forgotten but not gone. That makes a lot of difference. I wonder sometimes if we started out with an experience and we're trying to settle for a performance. The two biggest words we use today are fabulous and fantastic. I don't know what we do if we ever forgot fabulous and fantastic. Fabulous comes from fable, it means it didn't happen. And fantastic comes from fantasy, it means it isn't real. So you're really saying the mouthful when you say fabulous and fantastic. Teddy Roosevelt, when he was a young fellow, got hold of these lines out of a poem that jerked him up and made him come to and make a man out of himself. Of course, I mean, he was a, had asthma and had a weak body. They had money in the family, and he could have taken life easy, but he didn't. And this line about a young duke whose family had had a lot of money, but it's all gone. He was still trying to act like they had a lot of money. All that the old dukes were without knowing it, this duke fain would know without having. Now, I think it's possible to get in that condition today and act what's not, what's not there. Fabulous. Fantastic. I've often thought about the death of Uzzah because he touched that ark when it wobbled. Why did God strike him dead for just trying to steady that ark? Well, for one thing, he was the son of Abinadab and that ark had been in the house for weeks and weeks and weeks and months. 
They put it in there. The Philistines, you know, had captured it first, and then it was in his hand. And he got used to it. And it was the holy ark of God, or symbol of God's presence among his people. It had become just a ball to us. God help us when the holy things of God become just boxes. When the church becomes a boss, worship of the Lord becomes just a boss. I heard of a tourist group in Vienna. They went to see Beethoven's piano, which is in a museum. One of them was a girl, a teenager, and she sat down and started playing rock and roll on Beethoven's piano. And the old caretaker smiled and said, Padreski was here some years ago. Oh, she said, and what did he play? Nothing. He did not feel worthy to touch the keys of Beethoven's piano. I'm sure that poor little thing must have gone out red-faced if she was capable of being bad. But I get convicted myself. I get in churches sometimes where I come out with the choir and we all come out giggling and laughing. And I, I, I get convicted and I say, now, I know we're not supposed to look like we're going to a funeral. I know that, but... I get bothered and I say to myself, yes and you, you go marching in the pulpit sometimes so casually. And I find myself praying, good Lord, help me to go into the service every time. And into the pulpit as though it were the first time, fresh, as though it might be the best time that we ever had in the pulpit. And as though it might be the last time. Now you get a crowd of people together you like that, you bound to have a revival. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Drama has become very Drama prominent today. Very prominent. And the farther we get away from reality, the closer we get to make believe. When you watch church history, you will find that the lowest the church has been in spirituality, the highest in drama. And the very word hypocrite means play actor in the Greek. Our Lord walked on the water, he raised the dead, he fed the multitude, he never did it for show. He never did it at the suggestion of the devil. He could have jumped off the temple and not been harmed. The church has done spectacular and sensational things in history by the Holy Ghost, but not for show. Pentecost was a spectacular hour, but it was its own publicity. They didn't do it to Gain publicity. Today we stage our extravaganzas and call in celebrities from the world, put them over, and vie with each other if we can bring out the latest stunt. Get all excited. Old Clovis Chapel went to a meeting once where the young song leader was one of that nervous kind, bouncing up and down, jumping all over the place, shake hands with the five people to the right, shake hands with the five people to the left, trying to work up some steam in the meeting. Clovis Chapel said, you might as well try to boil water over the picture of a glowworm. What a statement. I agree with him. I was in New England one time in meetings, preached through that night of the place, wonderful time in one service. We had one of these dear boys, bless his heart, he meant well. But the first time we sung there's power in the blood, just one time, then we're going to have two powers and then three powers and then four powers. He just kept stepping up the power. And you know, by the time he got as far as he was going with the powers, you would have thought you were watching gun smoke on television. I said, I can't believe, I can't believe that does it. I don't believe that'll do it. Our Lord rejected all that. 
There's nothing Hollywood about New Testament Christianity. Jesus was the despair of the news reporters. When he healed the sick, he said, don't tell about it, usually. The demoniac wanted to join the Lord's evangelistic party. He said, go home and tell them what's been done for you. He fed the multitude, but he ran the crowd off by preaching on except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That'll thin out a crowd today. You tell them that unless they feed on Jesus, that they'll and disregard the meaning of that death when they take the Lord's Supper. Many will be sick and some will die from a disregard of the body of the Lord. That's a terrific passage of Scripture. Jesus thinned up the crowd with that statement. I must be your meat and your drink. Mount of Transfiguration. He said, don't tell about it till after the resurrection. Now, what would your publicity folks think today? And after Pentecost, they didn't try to live at that pitch, remember? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread and prayer. They knew they couldn't keep up that other gate, so they went at the gate they could keep up by the grace of God. God doesn't mean for every day to be shouting and hollering and carrying on. Uh, the Welsh revival was a wonderful revival, but it couldn't have lasted too long because people can't stay up all night and go to church and all day and all the rest of it and subsist. Uh, but... Uh, uh, sometimes God does give us something that's very exciting. New Testament Christianity had its high moments, its great days, but it wasn't flamboyant, it wasn't glamorous. They ran for most of the time on average, low-key, daily outliving of the in-living Christ, on the old S&N, the straight and narrow, traveling that old T&O, trusting the baby. That's the way they did it. The last temptation of our Lord was the strangest of all. The devil showed him. I don't know how he did it. Perhaps by some way beyond our comprehension. Perhaps by some strange demonic power, which we can't imagine. Showed him all the kingdoms of this world. Campbell Morgan said the fact that he revealed the kingdoms in a moment of time may have been due to his fear that if Jesus got a good look at him, he wouldn't want them. Well, I, I don't know what he put that interpretation not, but he made to pass before Jesus all his kingdoms. Then he said, now if you will fall down and worship me, I'll give you them. Now I know what you're saying. You say, well, it's not his to give. Oh, it's God owns the world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's got the whole world in his hand. But the devil temporarily is the prince of this world. Temporarily possessive. If somebody steals my overcoat, steal my, my overcoat with somebody else's possession. And so this present order, the devil is the prince of that. And Jesus was aware of that. The devil said in this same account of the temptation in the parallel account of Luke 4, 6, for that is delivered unto me. It's been given to me to give to you. And there was a sense in which he could own it. But Jesus said the prince of the world is coming, but he's got nothing in me. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He knew what he was up against. Jesus Christ knew he was up against the power of this age, the devil, and he's an awful fool. We read about them worshiping the beast, and in the garden when they arrested my Lord, he said a very amazing thing. All through those years of his public ministry, he said, mine hour has not yet come, mine hour has not yet come. But here he said, this is your hour as well as mine. 
and the power of darkness. It's a double hour. It's God's hour. It's the devil's hour. They met in a head-on collision in Gethsemane. It's my hour. It's your hour. Satan's the prince of this world. He's the Caesar of the cosmos. And he offered it all to Jesus. But Jesus said, no, I'm not taking any shortcuts. I'll go by the cross. And you see, God had promised it all to his son anyhow in the second psalm way back there. You've read it many times. And the devil may try to defeat God's plan to regain what the great usurper, and that's what the devil is. He's the usurper. He stole it in the Garden of Eden. But uh, one thinks of Khrushchev when he came over here and quoted that old poem, He Who Laughs Last Laughs Best. Well, Khrushchev read his Bible when he was a boy, I understand, but he must have forgotten that verse. It says the time's coming when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior and his Christ. And he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. That's the last laugh. And God will have it. It won't be the devil's. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven shall be won. Now, the church ought to get into politics, but politics ought not to get into, church, into the church. The church ought to get into everything. Christianity ought to get into everything. Robert Louis Stevenson said uh, that politics is the only profession for which no preparation is thought necessary. I'll agree rather with that. And uh, the church ought to get out everywhere and bear its testimony. We're the soul to the earth. I believe Jesus is coming to get us. That doesn't mean I'm to sit around waiting to be rescued by Jesus to come, not get out here and live my Christianity. You're the soul of the earth. My friend Ron Dunn, I heard him say, we're the souls of the earth and you can't, if all these church members whose names are on all the church books today, if they were real Christians and they were real souls, then why is all civilization so rotten? It, we ought to have some effect. I'm not talking about world conversion. We're not going to convert the world. God's taking out a people for his name. But if we're the soul of the earth, if all our folks whose names are on the church books, uh, they're the light and they're letting their light shine, why is it so dark? Because a lot of lights are not shining. They're under the bushel and under the bed. And God meant for us to at least partly illuminate the situation today. That's what we're here for. It ought to affect everything. Christianity is contagious. It ought to infect folks and start an epidemic. But it's not uh, having much effect. We've got a, a new serum of spiritual antibodies today devised by which people can get vaccinated with a superficial Christianity until they're immunized against the real thing. They don't want it. They think they've got it. Now, I believe we ought to get into everything as Christians where if we can retain our own individuality and our own testimony. But I mean every kind of a situation. I'm not talking about converted movie actors going back into the movies. I'm talking about that in our daily walk, our confession and our profession must line up with our profession in Christ Jesus. But... Our testimony by the outliving of the inliving Christ and the proclamation of the gospel and the winning of the lost, that's the way we're to affect it. There'll always be wars and crime and poverty and all the rest of it. But we ought to have as much peace and law and order as we can. We ought to stand for all that we can as citizens of our country. But the age of which men dream is not brought in by the politics of this world. And Dr. Torrance 
of Edinburgh, great scholar, said, when the church begins to stress community and social cohesion, it is a sign she's losing her grip on the living God and is binding herself together in a collective magnitude in order to make up for internal spiritual bankruptcy. The more you see the church getting chummy with the world today and adapting its methods, it's a sign of powers being lost. The early church didn't go at it that way. They didn't tone down. When the world of flesh and the devil got after them, they had a prayer meeting. They were in great danger. And they said, Lord, you know what you said in that second psalm? The kings of the earth are gathered and the rulers stand against the Lord and his anointed. And they asked for what? Well, in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they took notice of them that had been with Jesus. Boldness seen by the world. Verse 29, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak thy word. Soak by the church. Verse 31, the Holy Spirit came and uh, supplied the boldness and they spake with boldness. There it is, seen by the world and soaked by the church and supplied by the Spirit. And we read the place was shaken. I don't get into many places where we're shaken today. Some are shaken by dissension. Some are shaken with fear. Some are shaken with rock and roll. But they're not shaken the way this crowd was shaken, by the moving power of the Spirit of God. When Jesus was ready to go back to the Father, the disciples said, Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They were so anxious to find out. Maybe now he's going to become our Messiah. He didn't say that he wouldn't sometime. Now get that straight. He said, I'm not going to now. That's not the next thing on the program. I'm not going to lead a revolution against Rome. Now, early Christianity smashed the Roman Empire in a very real sense, but they didn't do it by that kind of a revolution. But when the age of redemption's over, then my Lord's going to come and he'll be the lion then. And what uh, won't be done politically now will be done apocalyptically then. Our Lord didn't change the power structure of his day. Uh, he died at the hands of that power structure. Pentecost didn't convert Jerusalem. It went right on to judgment, although Pentecost happened right in the middle of it. So as my... A friend, the black preacher Emmanuel Scott, puts it, our business today, he says, is to evangelize and ethicalize and eschatalize. That's pretty good. Uh, get out and get out the gospel and uh, teach them to live like Christians, ethicalize, and preach the times as they are in the Word of God. This earth will not be taken over by socialism or communism or dictators. The meek shall inherit the earth. Somebody said that's the only way they'll ever get it. Well, that's all right. We're going to get it. I like to visit these places where they say, keep out, you know, get off the grass and all the rest of it. I look at them and say, that's all right. You can have it now. It's all coming back to me anyhow some of these days. Uh, you've got the lease, but friend, I got the deed. And when I get the deed, I'm going to have a time. I'm, I hope the Lord will let me pull up all those uh, keep out signs and have a bonfire because the Lord's going to take over. Old John the Baptist had the blues, and he said, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. The Christian is looking for him who is to come. The world is looking for another one that's to come. They don't even know they're looking for him, some of them. But he's Antichrist. Jesus has a program, and he's got a great commission. The devil's got a program. He's going to head up things in this world under Antichrist, the world church. You see that shaping up before your very eyes? 
Babylon, the strange thing about Babylon is that there's so much in it about economics, buying and selling. Have you ever noticed how much there is in Babylon about money and business? Well, did you ever hear more about money and business than you do today with inflation and deflation and the dollar and all the rest of it? Getting ready. The devil's got a big program. And it's clever and it's deceptive. The church today sometimes helps put it over. When we take a tolerant, permissive attitude toward sin or the evils of society, the breakdown of morals in the marriage and in the home, law and order in the home, the school and the church, we're bowing to the devil just like the devil asked Jesus to do. We're partners in the devil's business. We ought to be promoting the cause of the Great Commission. How do you contend with the devil? How did Jesus do it? Have you noticed, beloved, he didn't contend with him in his own name? He was the Son of God. He didn't use his own name in contending with the devil. It is written, it is written, it is written. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's your weapon. Somebody said when you see an old Bible that's falling apart, it probably belongs to somebody who is not falling apart. They wore it out, but it's keeping them together. I'm not preaching bibliolatry, worshiping the Bible, not that, but it's the only textbook we've got on the subject. Let's get back to it. We're not called to the bread business, the shoe business, or the devil's business. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord's laid for his faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? He's already said enough. Then to you he have said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. One of the saddest things I know about is men and women of distinction today, professional people, socially prominent, financially, educationally, who stand aloof from any personal involvement with Jesus Christ, as though it were beneath their status to identify with the old rugged cross, its shame and reproach. Some think they've got a third world they belong to, but they're only two worlds. They're either for or against, and if they're not for him, they are against him. And so I'm not surprised the Bible says not many wise, mighty, and noble are called. And Jesus said not many rich people get to heaven. I read here finally that after Jesus won this victory, the angels came. In Gethsemane, an angel appeared and strengthened him. Make your request known with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will garrison <clears throat> with his angels, I think, your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I was in a little town some time ago, had a shop down the street, said in the window, and the man's name was Angel, Angel Service. <laughs> I said, well, I've been having that for years, ever since I started out as a Christian. I've been having Angel Service. The Bible says, are not they all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? I heard about a fellow said the other day, they asked him, how do you travel? He said, I travel TWA all the time, travel with angels. Well, that's a good way to go. We've got angel service. And sometimes when I get pretty low in spirits and think about that garrison, you know, I say, Lord, you better double the guard. I'm getting a little wobbly. You better double the guard. Send us out another regiment. And old Paul stood on that ship and told him what is what. He said, I'm speaking here. He didn't even get down there in the bottom of the thing, shaking and seasick stood up there and said, there appeared unto me last night an angel. They, they listened to the captain of the ship and they didn't listen to the preacher. I'm sure the passengers must have said, well, what would the preacher know about navigation? 
listen to the expert. So they listened to the expert and sailed away to shipwreck. The preacher is a seer. The world won't listen to him. Shipwrecks ahead. I'm glad for angels. I'm glad that when those women started down to that sepulcher, they said, now there's a great big stone in front of it. How in the world are we going to get that thing away? When they got down there, the angel had already done it. And I'm so glad that the angel didn't just roll it away. The Bible says sat on it. I like that. Called up on the thing and said, now look who's in charge around here. Herod, Caiaphas, so what? I must confess one of my great faults is crossing bridges before I get to Now don't look so pious out there. You've done the same thing yourself. So many things I dreaded never did happen. And I'm ashamed of myself again and again when I say, see how the Lord moves into the thing. And I say, Lord, am I never going to learn? And I go down to the sepulchre as it were, and I, how are we going to get this rock out of the way? And I find that an angel was there before I got So meet the devil with the Bible. The church is not in the bread business, not in the show business, not in the devil's business of trying to take over this. Meet him with the word of God. And if Jesus could whip him with three verses out of Deuteronomy, we ought to be able to whip him with the whole Bible.